The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and, because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, and as the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified by, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with this man? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. To stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Pride is a significant issue in my heart over many things. Perhaps one of the biggest things is a, a decent sense of direction that I think I have. And so my pride has been shattered a few times in my life when I've been especially on foreign shores and I've got lost at that point, this monster comes out of the top of my shirt. 
I rage. I refuse to ask for directions because that would be a very unmanly thing to do. And the temperature in the car increases by several degrees. Then I get out the smartphone and uh, I get perspective and I get directions. I do it by pinching my fingers on the wonderful Google Maps. That's not a product placement, but uh, I pinch the map and then I can get my bearings again. And then the temperature decreases. Getting your bearings is very, very important. We're in Acts 4, verses 1 to 20. And just in case we don't get our bearings, I want to remind you where we are so far. We've seen the ascension of King Jesus. He's returned from the earth to the heaven. I say that in a singular sense because it doesn't say the heavens, it says heaven. Jesus returns to his place of ruling and majesty and reign, which is heaven. We've seen God send his spirit as he promised and as he said he would. That's in Acts chapter 2. He's given birth to the church. These men are not drunk as you fear. They're now under the influence, the control. They see reality with great uh, perspicuity, great clarity. They can see all of nature as it truly is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But in Acts chapter 4 to 6, we need to see a new part of church life. Here it is, the church now having been given birth to and, and come together and shared all that's been in their hands for the good of one another. The church is now under threat. This is from John Stott, a preacher of a different age, but very helpfully nonetheless. He says, the church is now under threat. That's in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 6. The church is under threat. She's always under threat in every age. There will always be temptation. There will be persecution from the outside. People will not want to listen to the message of the gospel. So they'll do all they can to frustrate the work of the gospel and to frustrate and do terrible things to the church. By the time you get to Acts chapter 5, you see another danger for the church is one of compromise. Danger from without, that's Acts chapter 4. Danger from within. That's compromise. We'll see that in Acts chapter 5. But there's always the danger, Acts chapter 6, of distraction. Just think where we've come to. Talk about church growth. Acts chapter 1, 120 believers. A slight problem, a good one. In Acts chapter 2 and 3, 3,000 believers saved on the day of Pentecost. That's what's called growth. That's a problem. By the time we get to Acts chapter 4, it's now boosted up to 5,000 people, and that's just the men. Significant issues come to the life of the church unless they recognise that the church would always be under threat. Chapter 4, persecution from the outside. The danger of compromise, chapter 5, from the inside. The danger of distraction. Good things that you make main things, important things. See, the struggle to get organised is not engaged with. And so church growth is a problem and distraction is a real danger. But the church has been born into this culture, much like our own, that's hostile to Christian things. The Roman Empire was not someone that liked anyone claiming uh, ultimate authority and sovereignty, that wanted to dispose Caesar from his throne. And I want us to look at two things from Acts chapter 4, having got our bearings of where it fits into the early chapters of the book. The church is growing. There's this great danger that we see in Acts chapter 4 of persecution. But persecution doesn't just grow in a vacuum. Persecution has its deep taproot, like a weed in your garden, from unbelief. 
I want us to look at two things, the unbelief, the, the depth of it, the reality of it, and then the, the thing that it causes, which is persecution for every believer in every age. Let's think about the depth of unbelief. Now, by depth, point number one, I want us to see from this passage that depth is not, the depth of unbelief does not come just from a lack of understanding. If only people just understood the gospel more clearly, then they wouldn't disbelieve it. They wouldn't struggle with belief. It's just an issue of uh, a lack of education. It's just a, an issue of uh, misunderstanding. If only they would talk cl- clearly and correctly. Well, the Bible says that's not true. Unbelief does not just source itself from a lack of understanding. It goes deeper than that. I mean, look at w- with me, please, with, as we get our bearings again from, from where we are. Acts chapter 4, this is why you go to Bible college, follows Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, there was a remarkable healing. There was a lame man who was healed and, and his arms and his uh, legs were restored to full strength. Sinews that stopped working and tendons that had become disconnected perhaps started to work together by the authoritative word of the name of King Jesus. And there's a wonderful miracle that happens in Acts chapter 3. But in Acts chapter 4, now you've got Peter and John and they're in the dock. People are not happy with what's happened. People are feeling threatened. And so in Acts chapter 4, Peter gets up to defend the gospel. Notice the the context here. It has nothing to do with a a misunderstanding or a lack of teaching or a lack of education. People are struggling. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Look at who come together. Three groups of people come together with a joint hatred of what has happened. You've got the priests, you've got the captains, the temple guard and the Sadducees and they all come together in verse 1 to oppose what has happened in chapter 3, the miraculous healing of someone. Look down at verse 5. The next day, having corralled this, uh, this kind of mock court together, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, they meet in Jerusalem. So you've got three groups of people that come together with a joint hatred of what has happened and a joint hatred of the name of Jesus Christ. You've got the Sadducees. The Sadducees, well, well they're, they're the left, they're the liberals. The Sadducees did not believe in anything miraculous. They believed that morality was important, but nothing miraculous. They did not believe in the resurrection. Then you've got the teachers of the law. These are people who knew their Bible. They were called the Pharisees. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in a general resurrection at the end of time. They believed in miracles. They believed in in everything. They were hyper-religious. But one people were on the left, that's the Sadducees. One people were on the religious right, that's the Pharisees. And then you've got the political elite, and then you've got the rulers as well. The captain of the temple guard, the military were there. So you've got these three groups of people that come together, and Peter and John literally in the dock. Not libel, but they are concerned. Verse 2, they were greatly distressed. These three groups of people have nothing in common apart from their hatred of the gospel. Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed. Why? Because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you go back to last week, chapter 3, Verse 21, you see what Peter was teaching about the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ has gone to heaven. That's chapter 1 of the book of Acts. And he's coming back. And therefore, that's a huge threat to everybody. 
There's a day of justice that is going to come, come back when Jesus returns. He's going to restore everything. No more sorrow, no more death, no more suffering. Chapter 3, verse 25. All through Jesus, every nation of the earth will be blessed because it's from the seed of Abraham and to every nation that men, women, boys and girls will be saved if they call on the name of Jesus. Here's the key, verse 13 of chapter 4, as Peter and John are defending themselves in this trial before these three groups of people that hate themselves, and it's their hate of the name of Jesus that unites them. This is the chief issue, verse 13. When they saw the courage, the assurance, the confidence of Peter and John, and they realised who they were, they were unschooled, they were ordinary men, they were astonished. They were astonished. Peter says, verse 11, quoting Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Now let's get to the heart of the matter. Now recently I uh, revisited a book, Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of a Highly Effective People. I wasn't feeling down on my luck or feeling like I was a poorer leader than I am, but uh, I thought I'd look it up because I remembered an illustration in The Second Principle. Covey, who is a, an expert in leadership and whom I've, I've earned a gr- learned a great deal, he says, every human being has a bottom line. Every human being, whether you're in leadership or not, secular or in Christian leadership of any kind, every person has a bottom line. In the same chapter, he says, every person has a foundation. Every person has a foundation, which is the foundation in the very centre of their life. There is something in the human heart that is a non-negotiable. You could call it a cornerstone from this chapter. You see, he says, we're all builders. Look at verse 11. The stone you builders rejected. Stephen Covey says, every man and woman has something that they will die on the hill of their life for. There's something in the human heart that you say, this is my foundation principle. It's from here that I get value and meaning in my life. It's from this thing that I see the world. It's from this thing that I garner wisdom. It's through this thing that I can just navigate all the challenges that I face in my life. It's this thing that is my source of security. It's this thing around which I make every decision. So it could be your career. It could be your family. It's that source of identity formation. It could be your education. Whether you're a a student in later life or whether you're at college, university, school now. That is your confidence. That is your foundation. That is your non-negotiable item. And as a source of wisdom as well, it's It's with this lens that you look at other people. It's through this measuring stick that you measure yourself against other people. Covey says, every human being has a foundation, a cornerstone. Look at verse 2. What is it that disturbs these three groups of people? What is it that is astonishing to them? What is it that is such a deep taproot of unbelief? The gospel does not just offend them, Intellectually, there's something else going on. They're deeply disturbed, it says, because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus 
the resurrection of the dead. Here's the apostolic gospel that we've seen a number of times already. You killed him, but God raised him, verse 20 of chapter 4, and we've seen him. The gospel in its clarity, in its definition is growing. You killed him, God raised him, we've seen him. And that means we can't stop speaking about him. You see, Peter wasn't only saying that Jesus himself had been raised on that day in chapter 3, verse 21. He's saying because God raised his son from the grave back to new life, he's just the first fruits. He's like the first rhubarb. If you like rhubarb, you appreciate that. He's like the first apple that you taste. He's like the first strawberry from your garden. He's just the foretaste of the future. And because God raised his son from the grave, everyone who trusts in his name will be raised from death to life. They will be ascended into the glory just as Jesus was. He's the first fruits. He's the forerunner. He's the one that passes through the tape first. You killed him, God raised him, we've seen him, so we've got to tell people about him. Verse 20 of chapter 4. And so, although they heard bad news, there were thousands of people, verse 4 of chapter 4, who heard great news. You notice? And they trusted Jesus on the spot. Many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Everyone has a foundation. Everyone has a, a line that they are prepared to die upon. And here we have a religious elite, the political elite, the military elite, and they're gathering together because they are threatened by the claims and name of King Jesus. Their life is being shaken. Their foundation is being disrupted. That's what happens when the gospel comes into your heart, doesn't it? The gospel comes in and it uh, illuminates your cornerstone. It illuminates your foundationary values. It illuminates your measuring stick that you've used to judge other people. And whatever it is outside of the name of Jesus Christ is insufficient for the weight that you hope to put upon it. Everyone except the Christian has a cornerstone that is too weak. And in comes the gospel and says your foundation is too weak. It is inadequate for you to live and base your heart's priorities and convictions and to live upon. It cannot take the weight that you place upon it. It can be a relationship. It can be a career. Whatever it is you're living for outside of Christ is an insufficient foundation. I mean, look at Peter and John, will you? What's the problem? It's not just with what they're teaching. Look at verse 8. Here's Peter. It's so helpful to see Peter, who we learnt about at Easter, now leading the church. Here's Peter, unschooled, uneducated, but filled, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's a man who's disowned Christ three times, who's run to save his own skin, who chopped off someone's ear, not to give them a haircut, but because he, wanted, he just missed the centre of their head. And yet Jesus, by his grace, restores him, and now he's leading the church. Filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 8, he's bold, he's preaching without credentials. He didn't go to Crosslands. He didn't learn foreign languages. The Holy Spirit fills him, and so he proclaims the name of Jesus Christ. Where did it come from? Where did that power and authority come from? His old foundation has been broken up. It's been disrupted, and he's trusted the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, you'll always be anxious. 
in a low level or a deep level or an expressive level. Anxiety will be a hallmark for every human heart. You will always be afraid about tomorrow and an uncertain future if you're building your life and your hopes on anything but Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. But Christians, Christians have a sure footing and a certain foundation. What is the source of the courage that Peter and John had? Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John. Here are people that have been so radically humbled from their position of pride that they've seen and trusted the name of Jesus. And they see in him the only foundation that can take the weight of their expectations and the weight of their longings. And so verse 12, salvation is found in no other name. There is no other name by which we must be saved. You might be looking at Christianity and saying, well, if there's one thing that I could change about Christianity, it would be that one sentence. I mean, we were going fine. It sounded quite interesting until verse 12. That's an issue for me. You may be thinking that. There's one thing, perhaps you're looking on at you through YouTube and you're saying, can I come along to this place? I mean, you had me, ish, until verse 12. If I could just strike that through, then it would be palpable and trustworthy in the 21st century. Friends, let me tell you, if it's offensive now, it was just as offensive then and it will always be offensive. And if you remove this one thing, you don't change Christianity just slightly, you change it completely. Because what you're saying is, I just want to reach God by my own efforts and strength and merits. I want to build on a foundation that I think will last, that is suitable for the weight I put upon it. Let's just change this one little thing. Now what you're saying is, I want to change the whole thing. The reason why Peter and John, unschooled, ordinary men, could stand up because they'd been humbled and they realised that it wasn't their good deeds that could save them, it was only Jesus. There's nothing else that saves but Jesus, says the Bible. There's no one else that can save but Jesus, says the Bible. This is not just a a tweetable truth for children or for adults. It's what the whole Bible teaches. There's no other name under heaven by which boys and girls, men and women, can be saved. Do not come to him. Do not come to him when you think you're ready. You can come to him today. Do not come to him when you think, uh, I've lived a better week. You can come to him this morning. And what happens when they came to Jesus Christ, when this new foundation was built upon, when they realised that they could come to Jesus because all authority is in his name, when he's done it all for them, what happened? It transformed our identity. They were fishermen. They, They would have had calluses on their hands. They would be windswept and have those kind of features that look like leathery skin because they've been out in the sun. And yet they were unschooled, ordinary men who were speaking to the greatest minds of the day. How on earth is that possible? Verse 8, they've been filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke with the authority of King Jesus. They weren't afraid anymore. Why? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they trusted the name of Jesus. They didn't need the approval of the people they were speaking to. They weren't fearful of them. They weren't afraid even if they lost their life. They weren't anxious. They weren't angry. They'd been made into lovers of people. 
And so they put their lives on the line because they'd received the grace of God. Christian friend, you might be thinking, oh, that's great because my non-Christian friend is here. That's great because my non-Christian friend <laughs> is tuning in. Let me tell you, Christian friend, it's not just a lack of belief that affects non-Christian people. It affects Christians as well. Your main reason for not being happy today is not the concerns about finances that we all face and they are real. It's not the concerns about the future that some of us are facing and they are palpable and true. Christian friends, let me say this to you. You and I struggle with unbelief just as much as our non-Christian friends do. If we truly believe the gospel, it would change our lives. Remember Peter? He wrote some books as well as standing up to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. In the second book they wrote, 2 Peter chapter 1, he tackles head-on Christians who are struggling to believe the gospel. It's 2 Peter chapter 1. You can read it at your own leisure. He says this, you should be growing in holiness. You should be growing in godliness. You should be growing in love. You should be growing in self-control, but you're not. And the problem is you don't believe the gospel. If you're not increasing in these things, you've forgotten that you were cleansed by the blood of Jesus. If you're not growing in these things, then you've forgotten the gospel truth. And so I'm never going to stop reminding you of the gospel. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. Because all of us, whether you're a Christian this morning, whether you trust the name of Jesus or you don't, all of us struggle with the deep taproot called unbelief. If you really believe, said Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, that means there's part of your heart that does not believe the gospel. It refuses to believe that you are as loved as you are. It refuses to believe that the future is worth living for, so if only I could settle down for a quiet life. It's my wife's birthday, I won't tell you which number on uh, Friday just gone. For my many sins, I found myself in Jane Austen's house and took a day off then. I whizzed around, and good news for me, being a Jane Austen non-appreciative reader, is that uh, the house is quite small, so I whizzed around and I said, you take as long as you like, I'll go and read the Telegraph in the sunshine. And there was a lie that entered into my heart in this beautiful Hampshire garden with a... Uh, Flowers being tended to by three gardeners. There were bits of uh, wicker and wood and stone. And the sun was out for one day in the whole of the year. But wouldn't it be great to live in a house like this with a rose over the front door, with a small garden with a lawn? Wouldn't it be great to live a quiet life? I could live for Jesus like that. Joe came out, we were sat by the toilets, it was very romantic. And I said, I've just been having this thought, wouldn't it be great to live somewhere like this? She says, that's a temptation that you need to put to death. I said to her, happy birthday. I love you. <laughs> I don't care if you don't like roses over the front door. I bet I can guarantee you, everyone here, you've had that thought. Wouldn't it be great just to settle down and live a quiet life, whether it's Hampshire or the Caribbean or somewhere else who pays the bills? Wouldn't it be great just to have a book by the fire? Friends, don't be tempted to settle down. Believe the gospel that the best is not in Hampshire on a Friday morning. Believe the gospel that the best is yet to be and live for that and set your priorities around that priority, not about what is best in this world. Live for what is true, which is a world that will never perish, uh, spoil, perish or fade.
You don't need more knowledge to deal with this taproot of unbelief. You need the knowledge of the gospel to be continually renewed in your heart. That's how you stop settling down in a garden in Hampshire. Sorry if you live in Hampshire, but you know what I mean. That's a very long first point. Here's a very quick second one. Not just the reality of unbelief. There's also the reality of persecution. Let's look at this very quickly. The book of Acts has a companion in the Bible, and it's the book of Revelation. If you like, remember that illustration at the start, pinching your smart screen to get perspective? John Stott also says in his commentary on the book of Acts, the companion for the book of Acts is the book of Revelation. In the book of Acts, you see the church, God growing his church, encouraging his people on ground level. But in the book of Revelation, you pinch your smart screen and you see what's the reality behind the curtain. And there are unseen spiritual forces that want to do every Christian a great deal of harm. There's a cosmic battle that's being played out in the heavenly realms. And in the book of Acts, you see it played out on the battlefield. So don't think that Christianity in the 21st century is hard. Don't think of the people in Eritrea only or Iraq or North Korea and think it's really hard for them. I need to pray for them, but we must. The Christian church has always been under great threat. And in the first century, when verse 12 was uttered, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That was a hard word that was said in the first century. Why? Because of this reality, there were many gods in the Roman culture, Roman society. There were many gods, there were many religions. They all had authority over certain realms of agriculture or fertility and some such. And there was one thing you could not do, and that was to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there's one thing you should not say, and it's found in verse 12. There is no other name under heaven by which men and women, boys and girls, can be saved. In other words, it's just as unpalatable today than it was in the first century. Now, the temperature is increasing, and I say this very cautiously, that's a good thing for the church, because it will sift true believers. It will show us our priorities, it will throw us on Christ more. But here came Peter, here came John, and they said, Jesus Christ and him alone is the name, the only name that men and women must trust. He is God over the whole of the earth. He is sovereign over all. He's supreme over all. So don't you dare place him next to the God of fertility and agriculture. And the Roman Empire sought to clamp down and to stamp out the Christian church in the first century. It's happening here. Verse 3 tells us that they were arrested. Verses 17 to 20 tells us that they were charged not to speak the name of Jesus Christ. They were threatened and that's just the Roman Empire getting started. Here's the core issue, verse 7. Tell us the name. Tell us the authority. Tell us the credentials. How on earth did you heal the layman in chapter 3? By what authority did you do this? That's what it means to come in someone's name. Toikoko Kagawa is a great Japanese Christian leader of a couple of generations ago. He wrote a number of very helpful books. And his Christian story is very moving. He says this, I'm grateful for Shinto, for Buddhism, for Confucianism. I owe much to these many faiths. 
yet they could not meet me at the moment of my heart's deepest needs. I was a pilgrim journeying on a long road that had no turning. I was weary, I was footsore, I wandered through a dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Buddhism teaches great compassion, but since the beginning of time, who has ever said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many unto remission of sin? Do you hear that? I learned a lot from Buddhism, but Buddha never said, my blood has been poured out to cleanse you from your sin, to make you right with God. Buddha didn't say anything like that. Confucius never said anything like that. Muhammad certainly didn't say anything like that. They all could say, follow my teaching, that you'll be right with God. But Kagawa said, nobody met me at this level. The early church, Peter and John, proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ. And when you understand the claims of Jesus Christ, when you see who he is, he is no one's equal. He must not be put next to any other God. He is unique in his supremacy. He is unique in his perfection because he is God alone. If you read of his resurrection and say, I think he was raised from the dead. If you look at the brilliance of his teaching, the, the beauty of his character throughout the Bible, then the inevitable implication of the person of Jesus Christ is that he is supreme. You must not put him next to any other God. I mean, how do you know that Jesus Christ is true against the claims of the other world religious leaders? The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in his life. Here's what's so paradoxical. In verse 12, you have, second to, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have the most offensive, exclusive truth claim from the lips of an apostle, as well as the lips, lips of Jesus. But here's the paradox. This exclusive truth claim has made the most inclusive community the world has ever seen. Do you want to be part of that community? And you need to hold on to the truth of verse 12, that Jesus is unique in his beauty and power and his sovereignty. You need to hold on to the truth of the gospel that says Jesus is the way alone. Jesus is alone the truth. Jesus is alone the life. There is no other name given to us by which men and women can be saved. He is the only way to the Father. Verse 20, what a challenge this is. We don't have the power not to speak. That's what it literally says in verse 20. We cannot not speak of Jesus. We don't have the power to stop speaking. Why? Because it's the only greatest news the world has ever seen. It's true truth. It's life-giving truth that we're saved sheerly by God's grace and that pushes us out to tell people of his grace. When I get persecuted, says the apostles, I'm happy because I'm finally worthy to put my feet in the feet of King Jesus, who was the saviour of the world. And all I know is that by my dying, my dying to self, even my life, there will be resurrection. By my dying, people will be saved. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if the same could be said of us?